Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's who we are. It says in the King James, I like the way it says, a peculiar people. We're weird, guys. I'm telling you, if you're in the kingdom of God, we are a little bit peculiar. God has set you apart. He's called you out to follow him. He has pulled you unto himself. The Bible says he's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his glorious light. And so we want to learn what does it mean to live in that kingdom? What does that look like? What does that feel like? Now, for us, for this study this summer, we're going to go back and we're going to look at these first kings of Israel. The, the, the kingdom of Israel, the first kings you see, happened in 1 Samuel. Up until then, they have never had a king rule or reign over them. So if we're going to learn how to reign as kings and priests unto our God, it might be good to... The Bible says in Corinthians, these things are written as examples for you to believe. And so we're going to go back and look at these incredible examples, incredible stories from the book of 1 Samuel and see what it means to be a kingdom unto our God. God and learn together. Now let me give you the background and tell you where we're at. At this point in history, at the start of 1 Samuel, it is about 380 years since Israel has been delivered out of Egypt. Remember they went down to Egypt, uh, uh, Joseph got them back there, got the family back there. Uh, he actually grew up a nation inside of the nation of Egypt. Israel was born in the womb of Egypt. They were there for some 400 years. And, uh, and, and when they, by the time they get ready to come out, there are uh, maybe two to three million Jews that will be brought out of the land of Egypt. And God, the Bible describes it this way. It says, God by his mighty hand came down and brought his people, his chosen people, his peculiar people, his holy nation, and brought them across the Red Sea through the wilderness. They will spend the next 40 years going through the wilderness. Now, it probably only took them two years to get to the Jordan River, but remember because of their disobedience and their failure to believe that God could give them the land, they had to wander for 38 years after they got there, about two years to get there, and then, then they're going to wander for the next 38. And God's going to take this time and raise up a brand new generation of people who would be truly the people of God. He would take them across the Jordan River, they would take the city of Jericho, and we would launch what now known as the period of the Judges. And you find the book of Judges. And it's all about these stories of different judges. And by that time, Israel is mostly a divided nation. Ten tribes in Israel and, and two, two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan. And so it's a divided country. And, uh, and it's kind of like you've you got these judges in all different parts of Israel. And it's, a, it's like the wild, wild west. It is a very chaotic, crazy time. And, and what would happen is they would do good for a while, and, and God would give them peace in the land, but then they'd start sinning. They'd start worshiping the idols around them. They'd start emulating everybody else, and God would allow these other nations to come in and oppress them and put them into captivity. And then they'd cry out to God and say, Oh, God, we blew it. Help us, God. And aren't we like that? Isn't that just like us? We forget all about God till things go wrong. Oh, God, help me now. 
And that's what they would do. And so God would raise up a judge. He would come along, lead some military conquest and battles, and set them free again. And they would have times of freedom, times of oppression, times of captivity, times of liberty. And so this is what's going on for the next 340 years. Finally, that takes us to the place of our text. And so let's stand together. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse number 1. 1 Samuel 8 and verse number 1. And when Samuel grew old, he's the last judge of Israel, the last judge we will now know of Israel, or in his two sons. He appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, as such all the other nations have. Let us pray. Father, I I pray that today you would help us to understand what it means to be a distinct, holy nation set apart by you. I pray you'll open up the word of God in 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 a living, exciting way. Anoint me as I preach your word. I need your help today. And we thank you for your sweet presence here. We ask all this in your mighty name. Amen. Turn to someone, tell them you're a king and a priest unto God, and then you may be seated. Israel, as God's chosen people, had a very unique form of government. Now, there's some words that you know or are familiar with. One is democracy. That simply means the rule of the people. And so we live in America, we call it a land of democracy, and we elect our legislators and our Congress and all of that. Sometimes it doesn't always feel like the rule of the people, but that's what the word democracy means. Then there's the word monarchy, and it means the rule of the king or the rule of a monarch. And so that's another form of government, a monarchy. And then there's the word anarchy. Anarchy means there is no government. There is no rule, and it's lawless, and it's crazy, and it's wild. There is no government. But Israel was always called by God to be a theocracy. Theo meaning God. And so theocracy, Israel was intended to be ruled by God. And the way he ruled his people as a theocracy was he had spiritual leaders who were the priests and Levites. They took care of all the spiritual matters in the land of Israel. And then he had judges who took care of the civil matters. The civil law, the civil leadership was ruled by judges. But, but in their minds, in their thinking, God was always our king. God's the one we're gonna follow. God's the one we're gonna serve. But something begins to happen. They begin to say, we want our own king. We want to look like all the other nations around us. And I just read that text to you a minute ago. And there's, there's three reasons they really wanted another king. And the first is the word discontentment. Now, if you have your outlines or on the back of your bulletins, you may want to write this down at the bottom. Uh, but the first thing that, that really arose in them was a general feeling of discontentment. They didn't like the way things are. If we are discontented with the way things are, we will push for change. Discontention, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And so they felt the need to change because they didn't like it. They didn't like going in and out of captivity. They didn't like the fact that other nations would always oppress them. But what they really didn't realize, it, it was their own sin that led them to be always captured by their enemies. I would say most of our discontentment comes from mistakes we make, poor judgment calls, irrational decisions, not seeking the will of God. And what happens is when things get 
messed up around us in our life, we tend to get discontented with the way things are. For example, you have a marriage, you're not happy, you're not singing every day, it's not happening in the house, and you look around and say, you know what, I want to get out of my marriage. And so discontentment says, you know what, let's get a divorce. That's the way out, that's what everybody else is doing, and all the nations around me are getting divorces, I'll get a divorce. And so we do that. The trouble is, you usually bring more pain on yourself, more hardship, you're paying two incomes now, you're lonely, and you're all by yourself, it leads to immorality, and so it, sometimes that discontentment forces us to make Terrible choices. Get discontented with my job. You know, everybody around me, they're lost, they're, they're not saved, and I don't like this work, and I don't like the people, and, and I'm not making enough money, and so we quit rashly and foolishly, and then we don't have a job, and we're out of work, and we're begging for money. Uh, sometimes we look at our neighbor, and they got a bigger house, or we look at uh, the, well, the car they're driving, and we say, you know what, I need that kind of car. I should live on that kind of a plane, and we get discontented where we're at financially. It causes us to make poor business decisions. We rush into making money uh, uh, fast or in some way, or we try to borrow, and we borrow more than we can afford, and then we're paying debt, and we become a slave to the bondage of debt. So discontentment caused me to bring a new king over me, which is my mortgage company, or which is the bank who, uh, who owns my car. You see what I mean? And and here's the trouble. We look at our outward situation, but let me tell you where the true source of discontentment is. The true source of discontentment is a lack of peace in my heart. Paul makes a statement. I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. He says, I know how to be poor, and I know when I had a lot. I know how to be hungry, and I know how to be well-fed. I know how to, I've gone through all those experiences in life, but you know what? Jesus is at the center of my life. And as long as he is at the center, there's no reason to be content. You will not be content if Jesus is at the center. But when he's not in the center, when other things become more valuable or more pressing, when he's not at the center of your life, it will always create discontentment in your heart and life. And so Israel, because Christ wasn't at the center, they were saying, you know what, we're discontent, we don't like the way things are, Samuel's not getting any younger, let's get a king. And that wasn't God's will for the nation at that time. Okay, discontentment. The second reason they they, they wanted another king is because the Israelites are looking at Samuel's sons, and he's got two sons, and they are losers. I mean, they're, they're cheating people, they're accepting bribes, they're immoral, they were much like Eli's son before Samuel, and they said, you know what, if this is the next judge coming down the pike, we don't want your judges, we want our own king to rule over us. Something along the way, Samuel failed to pass on the visions and values of his family or of God. And the Bible doesn't tell us why they turned out so bad, but, you know, we can only speculate. Samuel's the judge of the land. He's traveling all up and down the nation of Israel that's beginning to come together. And so he's running on the road all the time. And maybe he had time for the whole rest of the nation, but not his own boys. I don't know. Maybe he failed to discipline his kids when they were younger. I'm not sure why they turned out so bad, and Samuel was such a godly man. But nonetheless, they said, we want a king. You haven't correctly passed the baton to the next generation. Listen, in Christianity, we always got to be thinking generationally. We always got to be thinking, how can I reach the next 
generation. How can I reach the teenagers and the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings because we're going to be gone one day. What, what, what kind of state are we leaving in the church? I think the church is in good hands, and we've got a wonderful young generation coming up here. But we always got to think generationally in church leadership. Number three, the, the, the third problem they had was they, had, they wanted to look like all the other nations. They wanted the prestige and power and pomp and circumstances. They saw their kings in their royal robes. They saw the pageantry. They saw the military might of those Midianites and those Philistines and those other countries that had their own kings. And you know what? We don't have our own king. We want to be like everybody else. How often do we as believers struggle with what I call an identity crisis? Now follow me here. The Bible says you are a chosen people, a holy nation. What does that mean? Set apart from everybody else. You are a peculiar people called forth to show the praises of God. Now now here's the problem. Sometimes we don't like our peculiarity. We want to look like everybody else. We want to blend in with everybody else. And if we're not careful... If we don't accept our identity as a holy nation, a peculiar people, if we are not a set-apart, holy people under God, we will begin to adopt the gods and the kings of this world. We want to blend in. We don't like being peculiar. We want to be on the in crowd. We want to be with what's happening right now in this world around me. And so we're trying to blend in. It means we adopt the gods and kings of this world. And so what are the gods and kings of this world? The almighty dollar. We don't bow down to Astra or Baal anymore. What do we bow down to? The dollar. And so we're filled with greed, and we're filled with this push to get more, and we're filled with the get-rich-quick schemes, and we're filled with covetousness and selfishness because it's all about me and mine. We adopt the lustful pleasure mindset of this world, and so we watch all the same things the world watches. We're watching the same movies. We go to the same movie theaters. We watch the same R-rated movies. We watch the same sex scenes on TV. We watch the same pornography at night on our computer. And what happens is, if we are not careful, we adopt this world's mindset, and we begin to adopt their kings and their gods. What's the god of this world? Pleasure. Party now. You can have it all now. And so we grab all the gusto we can get. We adopt the sexual habits and the addiction patterns of this world. The statistics about divorce are very similar between what occurs in the church and what occurs in the world. The statistics about immorality are very similar. The statistics about uh, porn viewing is very similar between those who are in the church and those who are in the world. Why? Because sometimes we don't like that mantle of being a peculiar people, a holy nation. But if you want to rule as kings and priests unto our God, you've got to accept the mantle of your calling and say, God, you're my king, you're my Lord, not the gods of this world. How many can we, how can we really say that today? Mm. Romans 12, 2, do not conform. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Israel cries out, give us a king. Give us a king. Wasn't God's plan and intention? And listen, listen to the warning Samuel gives them when he, you know, God finally says, okay, let them have their way. They got a free will, let them choose. But look what he says in verse number 10. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people 
who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king will do to reign over you. He will take your sons and make them serve with chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. And some he will assign to commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties. To others will plow his ground, reap his harvest. Still others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So he will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. We're losing the next generation by accepting the kings and gods of this world. He will take your daughters and make them perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to the officials and attendants. In other words, you'll be highly taxed. Wouldn't it be good to see 10% again in America today? Your men servants and your maid servants and the best of your cattle and the donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and of yourselves. He will take and they will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. Listen, be careful who you choose to serve. And if you begin to say, I want to look like this world and I want to act like this world and I want to walk and talk and think like this world thinks, you will become a slave of this world. Paul writes in Romans, Romans 6, 16, do you not know that you, when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you've got to serve somebody. So who's going to be your king? He would, God would later tell Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as king and Lord. When we become slaves to our desires, and when we insist on our own way, and we reject the rule of God, and we say, God, I don't want to obey your word. It's too constricting. I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. I want to be the king of my own heart. I want to be the king of my own life. You become a servant to your own lust and your own passions, and it will drive you, and they will kill you. Now, here's what happens. For Israel, this is a turning point. It's interesting when you study history in the Old Testament this is exactly about, this is, a, like I said, 380 years from the time they are delivered out of bondage to the Egyptians until they say, we want a king to the rule of King Saul. In 380 more years, Israel is going to go right back into bondage. And you have the rule and reign of the kings, and it's during the, after the third king, the kingdom is now divided, and you have a whole series of kings in northern Israel who are most of them bad, most of them idol worshipers. They reintroduce idol worship into the nation of Israel in a big way in the north. They're taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and this is followed by Israel and Judah, uh, excuse me, Judah doing the same thing in the south. They're taken into captivity by the Babylonians, what, 380 years after they said, we want a king. Don't you know whoever you choose to serve, you will become a slave of that new master. And they were put into slavery once again. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to introduce you to a guy by the name of King Saul. And that was all introduction. Now we're here. We're gonna, that was all extra. Now you get the sermon. So we'll pick up your outline right there. 1 Samuel 9 and verse number 1. And there was a Benjamite, a man standing whose name, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, 
the son of Aphiah of, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now Saul had the natural demeanor and bearer of, bearing of a king. He had the pedigree. He's handsome, tall, strong. We just had the NBA draft on Thursday night. He would have been a number one draft choice, a head, and tall, a head taller than everybody else. Think about what a power forward King Saul could have been. Okay, he, he, He's amazing. He has determination. He, is, he loses a donkey. He's going to set on foot with his partner, and they're going to look for this donkey. They're going to go 100 miles trying to find a donkey that's lost somewhere out there. And they go from city to city, and finally it will lead them to Samuel. And so this losing of the donkey is all part of God's plan to get Saul and Samuel together. So he finds the seer, Samuel, who can tell me where my donkey is at. But he's consumed with donkeys, okay? And yet he feels very inadequate. When Samuel finally tells him, you're going to be the next king of Israel, he says, who am I? I am of the smallest of the tribes, Benjamin, and I am the least. My family is the least in all the tribes of Benjamin. I'm the least of, all, uh, of my family's the, the, the worst. Now, now, I don't have time to go to the book of Judges, but Benjamin has a very dark history. Their history is known for immorality. Their history is known for perversion. Uh, their history is known for violence, the very violent tribe. Their sins were so atrocious that God will allow the other, the other tribes of Israel to almost destroy the Benjamites. You get down to that tribe, there's only 400 male people left in the entire tribe of Benjamin. And then there's this whole love fest where the, the, the ladies of J- Jabeth Gilead are, are, are marched out in front of them and they pounce on them and take them to be their wives. And so you have this descent of the Benjamites. This label will follow Saul the rest of his kingship because he is of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, keep that in mind. And so, and then he says, not only that, I'm the least of the least in my tribe. Now I've got good news for you. How many of you have ever felt like you're the least? Just me? You're the last one picked. You're, you're, you're struggling to get by in school. You're getting C's and everybody else is getting A's around you. And, and we all, and, and your family, you know, you, your family doesn't have a, a lot of money, maybe come from a poor background. And so all these inadequacies sometimes pound in our brain and the enemy tries to pound that and says, God can't surely use you. Well, I've got good news. He likes to take the least of the least and make something good out of them and use them for his glory. Moses says in front of the burning bush, you got the wrong guy, God. I stutter. How am I going to lead these people? And, uh, and yet God uses Moses mightily as a great lawgiver and leader out of bondage. Uh, Gideon says, I'm of the tribe of Manasseh, and my family is the lowest and least of the tribe. We're the down and outers. We're the people from the wrong side of the tracks. God, how, how can you possibly use us? And Saul of, Tar- uh, Saul of Tarsus would say, I am the chiefest of sinners. You want to talk about sinners? I'm the worst out there. But aren't you glad God takes a Saul, turns him into Paul the apostle. He literally takes the gospel all around the Roman Empire. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. God delights in taking the weakest vessels 
and using them for his glory. Why? So God will get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Because if we're all that and we're all that great and all that good, we are prone to take the glory for ourselves. Wow. Good news for us. Good news for us C students out there and us poor people out there and us who struggle with our family background. It's great news for us. God can use you. God can use you. He's got a plan for you. A couple observations about reigning as kings with Christ. Number one, if you're going to reign as a king and be a part of God's kingdom, he's got to turn your affection. If you want to live up to your potential as a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a, a peculiar people, he's got to turn your affection from where it's at now to where he wants to take you. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. Look at verses 19 and 20. I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you will eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is in your heart. So Samuel has now met Saul. He's setting him up for this new kingship. God told Samuel, this is the man. Verse 20, as for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Now, you're going to see this all throughout chapter 9 and, the, and, and most of chapter 10. Saul has this preoccupation with donkeys. He's got to find his dad, dad's donkeys, and, and, and this is what he's all about. And what, what, does, what does Samuel tell him? Do not worry about the donkeys. God has a higher calling for you. You are to rule and reign as the king of all of Israel. And Saul, you're spiritually dull, All you can talk about is your donkeys. Okay, are you tracking with me here? This is is where Saul's at at this time. He says, do not worry about them. Listen, it is so easy for us to worry about our donkeys, we forget about the kingdom of God. I'm worried about my houses. I'm worried about my cars. I'm worried about my money. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my food. I'm worried about my next paycheck. I'm worried, 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 worried. And we are worried sick over donkeys. And the Lord would say to us, listen, you are a part of the kingdom of God. You are called to rule and reign with me for all eternity. And all you can think about is next week's paycheck. Turn to Matthew 6. I'll give you a New Testament for it. But seek first his kingdom, verse 33, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Quit worrying about the donkeys. They have been found. I will take care of you. I'll help you pay your bills. I'll help you feed your family. I'll work those things out. But get it in the right order. My kingdom's more important than your stuff. Mm, mm, mm. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Your donkeys have been found. Don't worry. For tomorrow will take will worry about itself. Each day has enough of its trouble of its own. Let me let me go. Let me start verse 28. This is too good. You don't have it on the screen. Why do you worry about clothes? He says, see how the lilies of the field, they grow, they don't labor, they don't spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, all his splendor, was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which he is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you? God's going to take care of you. Seek his kingdom, 
It's about the kingdom of God. Oh, you have little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Where are my donkeys? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God. Mm. Turn your affection off of this world. And so when Christ saves me, I get my eyes off of all this stuff, and I get my eyes on Jesus Christ, and I, I no longer look at this world, as Colossians says, but I set my affection on things that are above, not on things of this earth, because God will take care of this stuff. You need this stuff, but God will take care of it. Trust God. Trust God. Mm. Mm -mm. He was preoccupied with donkeys. Samuel had an anointing for Saul for kingdom rule. And all he can talk about is his donkeys. Samuel would treat him to a royal feast. He says, "I'm, I'm throwing a banquet for you calls all the dignitaries to come together for this great banquet feast. He uh, takes them on a rooftop, and he begins to share kingly principles with him, and he teaches them as his own private tutor throughout most of the night. And then the next day, the Bible says he anoints them with oil because he would need the anointing power of the Holy Spirit to rule and reign as a king over Israel. And so he anoints them with oil. He does all those things. And yet, after after all this happened... Saul's heading home, and I don't have time to read it to you, 1 Kings chapter 10, it's in verses 14 to 16. Saul's heading home, and he meets his uncle. And his uncle says, has your journey been successful? Has everything gone well? And Saul says, and says you know what, uncle, it's gone great. I found my donkeys. He never once mentions the kingdom. We can get so caught up with donkeys that we forget our mission on the earth is to share the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. That's why you work. Not to provide for your family, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. One person believes that. God gave you a job to do what? To be a kingdom witness. The the byproduct of that is, yes, you'll be able to take care of your family. The main purpose you're there is kingdom. It's to share the kingdom of God. We talk about the weather. We talk about our cars. We talk about our stuff. We talk about our jobs. We talk about our sports teams. We talk about everything, and we never mention kingdom. And he says, you're to reign with me as kings and priests. My kingdom is to be your everything. Wow. Second thing, he will turn you into a new person. If you're going to be a part of the God's kingdom and rule and reign with him, not only does he got to turn your affections, he turns you into a new person. Now, this, is, this story really gets crazy here. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Look at verse number 5. It says there, and after that you will go to Gebeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps, and playing before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power. You will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. If you are going to rule and reign with Christ, there's got to be a radical 
change. The Spirit of God has got to come upon you and save you and transform your life, and he will change you into a brand new person. Isn't that good? Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Listen, it would take the Holy Spirit to change this donkey driver into a king for the nation of Israel. Now notice here, you will be changed. Now the, 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 the underlying messages here is you can't change yourself. All the self-help books and all this uh, relational therapy and whatever else you want to go through, you can't change yourself. You will be changed by God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be a brand new person. The Bible said for all those who are in Christ Jesus, old things are passed away. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus and now I'm a part of that chosen generation, that royal priesthood, that holy nation. Now I am that peculiar people called forth to show forth the praises of him. Mm, mm, mm. You will be changed. And he says, for God is with you. Do whatever you want. God's with you. Look, jump down to verse number nine, the same chapter. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these things were fulfilled that day. Now, Saul does some peculiar things as a peculiar person set apart by God. Look at verse 10. It's fulfilled exactly the way Samuel said it would occur. And when they arrived at Gebeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came on him with power, and he joined in their prophesying. And when all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other. Now keep in mind, they knew who Saul was. And now he's prophesying. He'd never done that before. They're shocked. They're amazed. And he goes on to say, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered and said, Who is his father? So it came to pass the saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? This became the saying because they knew his background. The word Kish means a snare. So his daddy was literally a snare. He comes from a rough background. He is the least of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a very immoral tribe. And now he's prophesying with the prophets. And they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And they're all buzzing about this thing. After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Wow. Now, I want you to follow with me here. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he begins to operate in prophetic gifts. And those who said, is he among the prophets? It seems Saul has a change of heart. He's off to a great start. The power of the Holy Spirit's upon him, and he's prophesying. Now, there's two lessons I want to give you, and I I want you to get this down from this story, and then we're going to wrap it up. Number one, when people witness you in church or see you go into church, would they say of you, is George a Christian? Is he one of the Christ followers? Does he go to that church called Faith Assembly of God? Now listen to me, if you're a brand new believer, that's okay. That's probably good news because you've been hanging out at the wrong places. But if you've been claiming to be born again and saved a long time, and they're looking at your life saying, is he at that church? Is he a child of God? Is she a believer? And they're surprised by that because they see you the rest of the week cursing? using profanity, 
They see you where you go and what you watch and what you do. They witness your life every day. They, they, you, you yell at your wife all week long and your kids, and then you come to church and you raise your hands and you're among the prophets. And we sing the songs of praise and worship and we look really good and may even get a little motion going, may even sway a little bit, may get around the front. Listen, let me ask you a question. Would they be surprised, your coworkers? What they say of you, is he also among the believer? Now listen, if you're a new believer, that's, that's, that's okay. That's, that's a brand new start and that's a brand new beginning. But if you've been saved and they're still struggling with your relationship at church and the fact that you claim to be a believer, there's something wrong with your life the rest of the week. Wow. Peter's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting. The first two times he denies knowing the Lord, and he's been a Christ follower for three years, three and a half years. Denies even knowing Jesus Christ by his actions. And then he does something. The third time he says he denies him with cursing. One of the things that drives me crazy is people who claim to be born-again believers, but they throw out this word and that word and this curse word and that profanity and this word and that word. You know, the thing that finally threw them off in the garden is when he used the cursing. Because they reasoned to themselves, any follower of the gentle, loving Christ would not use that kind of language. People, what's your speech like all week long? What are your habits like all week long? Your activities, your actions. Well, they look and say, and that's a Christian? They talk like everybody else. They act like everybody else. It's quiet in here. Does immorality and anger and secret sin and behavior cause people to say, is he with the prophets? You'll find from Saul later. Now, I believe that God genuinely moved upon him initially. This is his anointing for his kingship because it's the Spirit of God came upon him. But Saul would always have this trouble the rest of his rule and reign as king. He would always either blend in with the crowd or choose to please people over pleasing God. And when you become a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser, it will cause people to always say, is is that guy among the prophets? The second lesson is this, and get this, church. I want you to hear this. Gifts are no substitute for character or fruit. Gifts are no substitute for character. I think I said in your notes, character always trumps gifts. On the surface, it appeared this new king is going to start with great promise, great potential, great anointing, great insight, because now he's among the prophets. The only trouble is he is still very spiritually dull, because when he finally gets back to his uncle, he never mentions this encounter. He never mentions his anointing. He never talks about any of that. He only talks about his donkeys. So he still has that donkey mentality. Spiritual growth is measured by fruit, not giftings. I had no response there. Let me say that one more time. Spiritual growth, maturity, is measured by fruit in your life, not giftings. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Now listen to me. I talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit two weeks ago. 
I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. I believe they're to operate in this church today. I believe they're supernaturally given by God, especially in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Some of the gifts seem to be more uh, ministry gifts as you get to Romans chapter 12, as you get to some other places. But when you get to that, uh, that listing of gifts, God supernaturally moves, and he moves in the gift of healing, uh, word of wisdom, prophecy, uh, word of knowledge. Uh, he moves in those gifts of the Holy Spirit. And all the gifts are for the church today, and they're very, very important. But listen, that doesn't always measure a person's spiritual maturity. That's measured by the fruit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, meekness, self-control. He said, he said, this shows how you've been abiding in Christ. He says, if you abide in me, you abide in the vine, you will be fruitful. It is the natural outgrowth of spending time with Jesus. And he begins to change my life. He changes my character. He changes my lifestyle, changes my habits. Why? Because I spent time with the Lord in prayer, in his word, drawing close to him. But giftings are different. Character is a sign of spiritual maturity. Now, let, let me give you the verse for it. It's found in Matthew 7. It says, and let me read it to you, by their fruit you will recognize them, not by their gifts. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them, not by their gifts. Paul writes the Corinthians. He, he writes in chapter one and verse seven, therefore, you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. He says, you Corinthians, you have the gifts flowing. They're in operation. It's amazing. Now you overemphasize tongues and interpretation, but, but, but you're, you're operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he said, that's a good thing. I, I commend you for your, the gifts flowing in your congregation. But then he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, brothers and sisters, I, would, I could not address you as those who live by the Spirit but as people who are still worldly, infants in Christ. He says, you're saved, but you're immature because your, your lifestyle patterns are, are identical to the rest of the world. There's something wrong. The King James says, carnal. There's a whole category that should not exist in the kingdom of God. There are believers and then there are carnal Christians. And we just say, well, you know what? I'm just a carnal Christian. And you know what God would say to you? Grow up. It's okay when someone's brand new, born again, and, 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 and they're babes in Christ, and you have to give them a pacifier. But I will tell you, when they've been saved 30 years and you've got to part the whiskers to get the pacifier in, there's something wrong. Paul writes and says, you should not leave the beggarly elements of this world. You should have been gone on to maturity. You should be now teachers now, and now you still have to be taught the elementary things of the Word of God. Listen, church, we got to grow up. And the, the mark of our immaturity is our worldliness. And if there's no difference in the church than there is in the world, the world wants no part of our Christianity this is what you see in with the life of King Saul. Very, very gifted. All the potential in the world, but he never grew up spiritually. Your gifts are just the tip of the iceberg. 
you have an iceberg, you got 10% of the iceberg above the surface. But it's what's below the surface that will sink the ship. It will sink the Titanic. And they were the Titanic has issued warning after warning. Watch out for icebergs. Watch out for icebergs. And the Titanic radios back. We got this. Leave us alone. And they see these little icebergs jutting up out of the thing. And they're, they're trying to skirt that. But underneath is a huge, massive iceberg that will take that ship down and thousands of lives lost. It's what's below the surface. It's your character that will sink the ship. Your talents, your giftings, your charisma may look amazing to everybody else around you, but it's what no one else sees when you're alone at night in your bedroom with your computer. It's the way you act at work. It's the way you treat people. It's all that other stuff that will eventually sink your ship. And it's the character that would eventually sink the ship of King Saul. And we're going to look at his downfall next week. And we're going to see how this guy with all kinds of potential, prophesying, prophesying, Spirit of God come upon him, but he lost it. All because the character wasn't there. Character always trumps giftings. His attention never left the cares of this world. He never, never got over trying to be a man pleaser. And ultimately, his lack of character caused his ruin. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.